everybody to lesson number 23 in Master Plan for Life. It's page 221, and welcome to those who are watching us on live stream as well. Let me uh, tell you uh, what we're going to be doing the next four weeks. Uh, counting tonight, we, we have four sessions left. We have four sessions left, but we have six lessons. <laughs> so here's how it has to go. Tonight we're going to do lesson 23. Next week we'll do 24. And the final two weeks, we will uh, do two lessons each of those weeks. So two weeks from tonight, we'll do lessons 25 and 26. And then three weeks from tonight, the last evening, it'll be lessons 27 and, and 28. And all that's necessitated. I'm sorry that we have to squeeze them in like that, but that's necessitated because for uh, January, you may remember, Omicron was running rampant, and we had just uh, so many people sick that we had to scale back our uh, January schedule. So did not start the new semester when we had planned. Then when we did start the first week of February, then a few weeks after that, we had snow on a, on a Wednesday and had to cancel a Wednesday. So we had a number of cancellations. So that's caused us to have to do that. So thanks for your patience. But tonight, lesson number 23, page 221. And I'll remind you as to how this lesson on worship fits into where we've been and where we're gonna go over the next few weeks. This is the second part of Master Plan for Life. Part two is answering the question, why am I here? And in order to answer the question, why am I here? It all has to do with the church. Upper right-hand corner, every week I've been pointing you to that, where it says the objectives of the church. Previous section said the purpose of the, the church. Uh, when we get to the last couple of lessons, it's going to be the, the destiny of the church. That is the future of the church. It's all about the church. So you can see from that, as we try to answer biblically this question, why am I here? It's wrapped up in what is the church? What is God doing through the church? Where do I personally fit into the church in order to carry out the purpose that God has for me? So uh, this second section, part two, uh, began with lesson number 17. And le lessons 17 through 19 were on the, the purpose of the church. And then beginning with lesson 20, we started looking at the objectives of the church. That's what the upper right-hand corner here says, objectives of the church. And let me remind you that there are three of those, three objectives that God has given to His church in order to achieve its purpose. Three. They are evangelism, edification, and expansion. Evangelism, edification, and expansion. And so in lessons 20 and 21, we looked at... Uh, evangelism and how evangelism is carried out. There's personal witness and there's corporate mission. That's what those two lessons were about. And then last week, we moved from evangelism over to the second of those three objectives, edification. And how is edification done? Three ways. We saw the first way last week. It's education. If the church is going to build up, that's what edify means, you may remember. If we're going to do that, then we have to engage in educating, teaching the, the congregation. But tonight and next week, we're going to see two other things that the church has to do in order to build up, in order to edify. And then after that, we will, uh, two weeks from tonight, uh, together we will see the two things the church has to do for expansion, that third objective, and then we'll have two final lessons on the future, the destiny of the church, okay? So evangelism, edification, expansion, we're looking at the second of those three right now which is edification, and we're looking at the three ways that 
the church carries out edification. We saw the first last week, it's education. Today, we're looking at worship. Worship is a necessary part of what the church has to do in order to edify, build up the people that, are, that comprise the church. Okay, everybody good? Page 221, top of. It's been shown that a key activity of the local church is the education of its membership. It's what we saw last week. The accomplishment of this goal should result in spiritual growth, should result in edification. Let me stop there. The key word there is should, because it's not automatic. And, and that's why we have the word should. It should result in that. As you teach God's people what God says, that's what education is. As you teach God's people what God says about them, about Himself, about what He's given us to do, then it should result in us growing, growing in our knowledge of Him, growing in our intimacy uh, in terms of our relationship with Him, uh, in terms of our intimacy with one another because of what He says about the need to emulate His character in loving one another. Uh, all of those things ought to happen. They should happen. But should does not mean they absolutely, they absolutely will. It's not automatic. And so you made the effort to come tonight. Uh, and that takes some effort. It takes some effort, you know, if you're working to, to get off, to, you know, if you get some time to get some food, maybe not. You have to hustle in here, try to avoid the train, you know, do all the stuff you got to do to get here. It's effort. Uh, but you make the effort because you want that to happen. You want the spiritual growth to occur. And so you're availing yourself of the education that the church is, is providing. But what if you don't? You know, it'd be very easy to blow that off, wouldn't it? And, you know, there's some nights I'm sure you, you feel that way. Some nights you've probably done that. But resist that urge because we, in order for this objective of edification, for you to be built up in the faith, then it doesn't automatically happen. Um, but if you put the effort in and if you're at a church that offers you the, uh, the vehicles in order to be built up in the faith, then it will happen. But I just want to, want to beat on that a little bit. It does not happen automatically. I had a lady in our church write me last year, and she had, uh, she's got some physical challenges right now. She had to give up an area of service that she had faithfully served in for a number of years uh, at our church. And uh, when she wrote saying she hated that she had to give this thing up and she can't do it, uh, which, of course, we understand, but she said, and, and I wrote it down, she said, you're the first minister I've had to enlighten the people about the importance of our service to the Lord. That was, that was interesting. The, here's a gal who's uh, retired. She's up in years. She's been a Christian for a lot of years. She's been in church and churches for a lot of years. And yet, it was ne never emphasized to her in her experience that these were things that the Lord expects us to do. And that is a simple thing you know, it's a very obvious thing that the Lord says to do, you know, but I'm surprised and actually a bit saddened that she would have to say something like that. It's the first time that I've really had that emphasized, but she was very glad that it was because she availed herself of opportunities to serve, did it faithfully for a number of years, and it not only helped other people by her service, but she grew through it as, as well. All right, second line there again, the accomplishment of this goal should result in spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is expressed in two types of relationship. The first one's vertical, you know, so up and down, that is our relationship with God, and then the other is horizontal, our relationship with, with people. 
Now, if you, if you think about it for a moment, you know that that's true. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with the incident where Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, uh, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commands hang all the law. Everything else hangs on that, those two things. Well, notice what he's saying here. He says, God, love God, love others, love your neighbor as yourself. Horizontal, up and down, your relationship with God, and that's first. And then, if that is true, then there, you're also going to emulate God's character in the way you interact with, with others on the horizontal plane. So both of those are, are here, our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. The appropriate vertical relationship is known as worship. The appropriate horizontal relationship is fellowship. This lesson deals with worship. Next week, lesson 24 will be on fellowship, what the Bible says about our relationships with, e with each other. Now look at that again. The appropriate vertical relationship is known as worship. So uh, the, the way or the term to describe what it is we're doing in relating to God, the term is worship. Now, when you think of worship, when most of us think of worship, we think of a narrow definition of worship. That is what we do on Sunday when we all come together, the worship service. But as you'll see when we go through this, yes, that is certainly part of it, and it's an important part of our relationship with God, an expression of our relationship with God, and strengthening our relationship with God when we come together for the worship service. But worship is interacting with God all the time. So worship is something that's supposed to be happening all the time. You don't have to be in a worship service to be worshiping. And in fact... Because we are made in the image of God, and we were therefore made to be worshipers, human beings were made to be worshipers, then it's not a matter of whether we'll worship, it's what or who we will worship. You, I, people in general are worshiping all the time. They're worshiping someone or something, worshiping their careers, worshiping their bodies, worshiping their families. Sometimes the things they're worshiping are good things but they're lesser things. They're things that are lesser than God. Anything other than God is by definition less than God, right? So when, when, I, when I deal with those other things, whether it's my career or my body or my, my family or whatever it is, all good things, but they're still lesser than God, I ought to deal with them in a way that has God as part of the calculus. You know, why do I love my family? What do I want for my family? Well, I want what God wants for my family with reference to, to God. My career, why do I care about my career? Why do I care about a particular career? I want to think about that with reference to, to God. Your, everything should be God-referential. Everything you think about, you know, as you grow, and the more you grow and the more I grow, the more God is referenced in what I'm doing, what I'm thinking about. I'm becoming more and more God-centered, to put it another way. So, so when we say the appropriate vertical relationship is known as worship, as you'll see, we're not just talking about the worship service. We're talking about our interaction with God or something less than God on a regular basis. Next paragraph. Many years ago, the English word worship was spelled worth -ship. 
Originally, the word was associated with the concept of worthiness. It referred to the act of displaying or describing the value of a person or object. And therefore, the concept of worship is the activity of God's children by which they affirm His supreme value. Uh, that is, that's a really good definition of worship. You're affirming uh, the supreme value of God. Now, when you worship something else, when in practice you make someone or something else more important than God, then you're affirming the value of that person or thing. But proper worship directed toward the true and living God is affirming His supreme value. Sin is someone or something being worth more to us than God. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1 deals with this worship disorder that human beings have, a worship disorder. You know, sin, that's what sin caused, <laughs> a worship disorder. Adam and Eve, humanity, were made to worship God. Sin comes into the picture and it disorders their, their worship. So now instead of worshiping God, here's Eve, she finds more value in an object. That's what she was tempted with, here's an object. And remember the Bible carefully describes why it was she partook. Uh, it's because it was pleasing to the eye and to the tongue. So it pleased her senses. And in that moment, that object became more important to her than God. And she sins. And sin, every time you sin or I sin, in whatever way we sin, in that moment, some object, something, some person has become more important to us than God. And it started back in the garden. We now, humanity has this worship disorder. Even then as Christians, we still fight the vestiges of the habits and the sin, the sin nature to allow ourselves, to give ourselves to, to lesser persons and things. And Romans 1 talks about that. Romans 1 talks about... Uh, Verse 23, Romans 1.23, exchanging the glory of God for created things. Exchanging the glory of God, the character of God, the worthiness of God for stuff that this God made <laughs> and making that more important. Verse 25 of Romans 1, Romans 1.25, it says that humanity outside of Christ, humanity in its sin nature, exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worships and serves created things rather than the Creator. So you see what I mean by this worship disorder, right? It's taking not and, and placing God as supreme, but someone or something as supreme. And that's always the deal when we sin in whatever way we sin. Last sentence in that second paragraph. This lesson will show that worship can and must take place in the corporate life of the church and in the individual lives of its members. So the corporate life of the church, the church service. But also when we're not in the church service, when you're at work and when you're at home and uh, when you're having a meal, everything we do. The following is a formal definition that will be developed in this lesson. Worship is the awe-filled praise, and commitment to obedience made by God's children 
in response to their understanding of his holy character as revealed in the scriptures. There's a mouthful for you. But worship, and again, not just the narrow worship service, worship as a way of life, is the awe-filled praise and commitment to obedience that we make, made by God's children. But why do we make it? We make it in response to our understanding of God's holy character as given to us in the Bible, as given to us in, in the Scriptures. So there are two points in this lesson, Lesson 23. You see uh, Roman numeral 1, about two-thirds of the way down, the focus of worship. And then if you look at page 222, you'll see Roman numeral 2, and it's the response of worship. Those are the two major points of this lesson, the focus and the response. Now here's why I point those out. If you go back to that definition given in the middle of page 221, you see both of those, the focus and the response. The focus is the second line of that definition. So again, see the definition? It's in right in the middle there, in italics. Worships the all-filled praise and commitment to obedience made by God's children in response to their understanding of His holy character as revealed in the Scriptures. That second line is actually the first point of our lesson. The second line is the focus. The second line, the focus is His holy character as revealed in the Scriptures. And then once you know who He is, His holy character is revealed in the Scriptures, that then should result in the response. And the response is the first line, our all-filled praise and our commitments to obedience. So both of those elements, both of the points in this lesson are in that definition, but in reverse order. The second line is the focus, the first line is the, the response. We say worship is exclusively concerned with the glory of God. The biblical term glory is used in a twofold sense that defines both our focus and our response. The focus of worship is sometimes called His intrinsic glory. We'll see that in a bit. And our response is ascriptive glory. So let's see these two things then, the focus and then the response. In the Scriptures, the word glory is often used to describe the character of God. As such, it speaks of His intrinsic glory or character qualities that He has made known to mankind. So intrinsic. If something is intrinsic, then that means it's the essence of the thing or the person. And so God's intrinsic glory is just who He is by virtue of being God. Intrinsically who He is. He doesn't acquire it. He doesn't increase it. He doesn't grow in it. It's just it's what He is as, as God, by His nature as, as God. It is His character. That's what we mean by His intrinsic glory. And apart from an understanding of the glory of the Lord, then true worship cannot take, take place. So our response is based, as we see in the definition, and will be Roman numeral 2, is based on our understanding of His character revealed in Scripture. So that means that worship is broader than we normally think. I told you it's not just the narrow worship service. But even if you just think about the worship service, uh, we need to, if we really think that worship is our, our response to the holy character of God, if that's true, 
then what elements of the worship service, what we call the worship service, are truly worship? Um, I'm asking you to think about it for a second. So what are the elements in a typical worship service? Right? We have scripture reading. We have, we pass the hat. We have giving. We have the preaching. We have the music. Um, so, you know, you've got a handful of elements. And which parts of those are, are truly worship? Well, thank you. <laughs> no, that's right. And, and the reason I'm, I'm asking that question is just to force us to think about the fact that very often we think that something like music is the sum total of worship. And I think I've said this in previous lessons, but uh, sometimes, in fact, not just sometimes, a lot of times, the music guy is called the worship leader. And I object to that because I don't want to give the impression that music is the sum total of the worship. Now, if it's done right, and thankfully our people do it right, they pick good songs with good lyrics, with good doctrine, good teaching in it, it's true to Scripture, well then when we're singing, we're also being taught. We're being taught the character of God when we sing these things. So that's a, an, a, an important component of our worship, but it's not the sum total of our worship. You know, when we, when we give, we're expressing something about the worthiness of God, the character of God. Hey, He's worth sacrificing for. He's worth giving some things up in my life because of who He is. And we're expressing that when we, when we give. You know, when we pray to God, we're bowing our heads before God. Why? Because He's enthroned above, above His world. We're asking Him for things. Why are we asking Him? Because He's the Creator. He's the, he's the Lord. He's the Master. That's a part of worship. You're expressing His, his character when you, when you do that. We're reading His Word. Why are we reading His Word and having a Scripture reading? We could read something else. We're reading His Word. Well, hey, believe me, some churches do. You know, the pastor's going to, you know, I read a novel, and I'm going to give you an exposition on some novel that I read. So we're reading His Word. Why? Because he's, it's His character. He's worthy. So every piece of it, don't ever make the mistake of saying, you know, we have the worship time, and then there's the preaching. Uh, there, there was, the thing imploded because the guy who started this uh, had some character issues. But for about 20 years, something called the Harvest Bible Fellowship, uh, started by a guy named James McDonald. He had a radio program called Walk Through the Word. And James McDonald was a very good teacher, and this Walk Through the Word was very helpful uh, to, to a lot of people. And for a lot of years, he did a good thing. He was, uh, it's amazing, some of these guys will are megalomaniacs behind the scenes. I mean, they just, have, they just have egos and they have anger problems and all kinds of ungodly things. And that was the deal with James McDonald. And it's been the deal with, unfortunately, a lot of Christian leaders. And they're not held accountable. They don't have anybody to hold them accountable. Look, uh, you know, I'm a sinner like anybody else, but if I do that kind of thing, I got people who will have my head. <laughs> I'll be held accountable. And that's a good thing. Okay? But there's no accountability for this. So James McDonald, you know, he goes and builds this big thing, and it went gangbusters for a while, but then imploded because he had all his, his issues. But I went to, uh, back in about 2010, I went to Chicago to one of their annual uh, conferences. And they have there what they call, had what they call Harvest University, and they teach people the philosophy of Harvest Bible churches. 
And they have four pillars. They had four pillars to these churches. And the four pillars of harvests were, uh, they had an adjective for each of these, but I can't remember the adjective, but it was basically it was prayer and it was evangelism and it was worship and it was preaching. Prayer, evangelism, worship, preaching. You guys everybody see a flaw here? So preaching and worship are separated. You see that? Prayer and worship are separated, actually, also. And so I'm thinking to myself, right when I get there, I'm going, well, we got a problem. If you can't define worship any better than that, then I probably don't want to join your thing, which I never did, in part because of that. But then I was curious to know, well, what are they going to define as worship? If you go to the worship, because all four of those had its own session to it. So you can go to the prayer session, the evangelism session, the preaching session, the, the worship session. So when I go to the worship session, what do you think it's about? It's, it's music. Who do you think's running it? The music guy. So they have completely defined worship as music. And they've separated that from the, from the preaching. And, and, if, and if you, James McDonald, or you, whoever did that, <laughs> the four pillars, if you guys can't think any clearer than that, then this is not the, the organization for me. But they're not alone. Lots of people do that. So don't do that. All right? That's the moral of that story. Look at the bottom of page 221. Don't do that. In the Scriptures, the word glory, as we saw, is often used to describe the character of God. And so it speaks of His intrinsic glory, His character qualities He's made known to mankind. Apart from that understanding, true worship cannot take place. So first of all, true worship is exclusively focused on the character of God. Because of His character, God alone is worthy of worship. And at the end of human history, that's what you see in Revelation chapter 5. What do you see God being worshipped for? I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, and glory and praise. Do you see how this is focused on who He is? On His character. So if that's what worship is going to be in the future, according to the book of Revelation, then we should be training ourselves for that kind of worship now. Drinking in all that we can about who God is and His character and how it applies to our lives. Top of page 222. The first five lessons in this curriculum, Master Plan for Life, describe several of the attributes of God that are foundational for our worship. So if it's about the character of God, if you went back to the very first section of Master Plan for Life, going back to last September now, and the first five lessons of this were all about God. That was the section on God. And in that, we saw these two things, that God is to be worshipped because He's infinite, He's to be worshipped because He's holy. Remember, we, we saw that God's character qualities can be divided into these two, uh, into these two categories, uh, those of His greatness and those of His goodness. And those of His greatness are things that He is infinite in. He's without limits, without external limits. And then those of His goodness, like His mercy, His grace, His love, He's holy in, in those. So infinite and, and holy. There are many attributes of God revealed in the Bible that have not been dealt with in these lessons. The lifelong task of the believer is to know God better and to praise Him all the more, the more we know Him. So Master Plan for Life has given you an introduction to character qualities of God, but we certainly haven't exhausted it, and you'll spend your life exhausting that. As a matter of fact, you'll spend eternity exhausting it. 
exhausting the person of, of God. So true worship is uh, in response to the, is focused on the character of God and it's a response to the works of God. He's to be worshipped because he's the creator. He's to be worshipped because he's the one who sustains his world. Now, it's important, friends, to put these in the right order. Point A is about uh, what God, uh, who God is, his character. Now this is what God has done, his works. And I would encourage you to get in the habit of praising God even when you pray. Praise God for who he is before you praise Him for what He does. Because you don't want to get into the habit of only coming to God for what He does for you. But rather, you want to come to God because of who He is to you. And then you ask Him for what you need, of course. That's perfectly appropriate. You think about the model prayer that Jesus gave, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. You know, this is about who He is. Your name is holy. Your will be done. Okay? You are, you're the one who knows best for your world, so your will be done. Your kingdom come. That's way better than anything we can create <laughs> down here. So I'm praising you, Lord, for who you are. Then I come to what you do. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Okay? So that order is important, who God is and then what God, what God does. Point C, true worship is inseparably linked to the Word of God. People often think of worship as an emotional experience. And by the way, that would follow, wouldn't it, that people think of worship as an emotional experience if most people think of worship as tied to music. And so that's one of the reasons they do that. While true worship will affect one's emotions, it's primarily the believer's interaction with the Word of God. Apart from the understanding of the content of the Bible, then true worship is is impossible. It's the, in the Bible that the character of God is thoroughly explained. So if you define what worship is properly, which I believe we have here, then it follows that I'm going to have to have a real focus, we're going to have to have a real focus on the, the Bible, the Word of God, because it's there that I find the character of God taught. So if worship is about, first and foremost, who God is, then where do I find out who God is? I find that primarily in, in Scripture. All right, so that's the focus of worship. It's on the character of God, the works of God that flow from that character. It's linked to the Word of God that teaches us that character. And then there's the response of worship. The concept of glory not only refers to the attributes that God possesses, just because He is God, His intrinsic glory, but also to our acknowledgement of those, our response to that. So once we are, as you learn more about who God is, you have a response to that. And you acknowledge that, and you praise Him for that, and you align your life with that accordingly. That's now not a intrinsic glory, it's ascriptive glory, because we ascribe to Him greatness and honor. Now, we ascribe it to Him. We don't give it to Him, meaning He, already, he intrinsically has it, but we're acknowledging it, and so we're praising and recognizing Him for who He is. You see that in Psalm 29 here. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. So how do we do that? Top of page 223. We worship God with 
awe-filled praise. One term that's translated worship in your New Testament focuses on an attitude of humility. It describes the act of lying prostrate on the ground out of reverence. It therefore depicts awe-filled praise. Such worship is revealed in a number of ways that we'll, we'll see here. So it's awe-filled praise. This, at least this one word in the New Testament for worship emphasizes this prone position, prostrate on the ground out of, out of reverence. It's an attitude of humility before God. Awe-filled praise. In humbleness, in humility, we come before Him. Now, you see that word prostrate? Did you know you do not have a prostrate gland? You have a prostate gland, but not a prostrate gland. Every now and then, I just correct common mistakes that people make, okay? Every now and then, somebody will say, you know, I had to, you know, have something done for my prostrate no, it's your prostate, okay? That has nothing to do with our lesson other than I just like to get those things off my chest every now and then, okay? All right, glory is ascribed to God then in this attitude of humility, this all-filled praise in a number of ways. One is through our confession of sin. Confession is the believer's sincere acknowledgement of the righteousness of God. It enables the believer to, to serve the Lord. Now, that line, every one of these lines is carefully chosen, guys, so do your best. I know it's late in the day and you've all had whatever you've had to do today, but try to focus on, on what it's saying here. Confession is our sincere acknowledgement of the righteousness of God. So when I confess my sin, I am saying that, hey, what I've done doesn't meet your righteous standard. That's what it's saying. That's how confession is connected to the character of God. I mean, the whole reason there is such a thing as sin is because there is the standard of God's character, and sin doesn't meet it. And when I don't meet it, confession is saying, Lord, you have the right standard, and I failed it. In fact, the word confess in the New Testament literally means to say the same thing, to say the same thing, confess. Say the same thing. What are you saying? The same? You're saying the same thing about your sin that God does. So God says, here's the standard. And God says, anything less than that is unrighteousness. The standard is my righteousness. Anything less than that is unrighteousness or sin. And I'm saying the same thing about it. I'm coming and confessing that to the Lord. But it's connected with His righteousness, His, His character. Hebrews 9, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? You know, so we, we can serve God with a clear conscience. We can, we can serve God uh, with enthusiasm, not weighted down by having something between us and the Lord. Now, when I say something between us and the Lord, I don't mean something that's going to send you to hell. If you're a believer, you're going to heaven. But there's your walk with the Lord and your intimacy with the Lord, your fellowship with the Lord. And that is affected by unconfessed sin, undealt with sin. And so the Lord invites you, come and deal with it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So glory is ascribed to God with our confession. Second, it's ascribed to God through our testimony of God's character. 
Believers proclaim the greatness and the goodness of their God. You see those two words, greatness and goodness? Those again go back to lessons two through five of Master Plan for Life, those two categories of the character qualities of God, and we proclaim that. That might take place in a church service where you give a testimony and you say, hey, the, the greatness of God was shown in my life in this way just this past week. Or um, at our church, we don't have testimony. <laughs> we only have it once a year. Um, at our anniversary service, that's the only time we let the mic kind of roll around. And because people have a pent-up desire to give testimonies, then we have to put time limits on the testimonies <laughs> sometimes. But it's a, it's a chance to testify, whether publicly with a microphone or just talking to another you know, brother or sister and just saying, hey, this is what the Lord, this is what the Lord did. I saw His greatness. I saw His goodness in my life. So it may be in a church service or in the community as an act of evangelism where you're testifying to somebody who needs the Lord, you know, how you came to the Lord, why you came to the Lord, and how He showed His goodness and His greatness to you. But either way, the word and the deed of testimony has to focus on the character of God. 2 Thessalonians 3, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. So it's honored when it's focused. It's on God. It's God-centered. Acts chapter 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. They honored the word of the Lord and all who were appointed for eternal life believed and the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So glory is ascribed to God through our testimony of God's character, its impact on our lives, uh, the need for others to have it impact their lives when we witness to others. And then in our prayers, glory is ascribed to God through the believer's prayers. Prayers primarily preoccupied with the glory of the Lord. John 14, Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Do you guys see that? Notice what it says. I will do whatever you ask in my name. And then you see the reason I'll do it? So that the Father may be glorified. So God's objective is always His glory, that He'll be praised. And so even in answering the prayers of His people... The objective is, of God is for him to receive praise when he does that. Now, he says, I will do whatever you ask. Now, if you, put a, if you put a period there, you now have the command and control, health, wealth, prosperity preacher theology. You tell God what to do. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, name it and claim it? So you name it and you claim it. You say, God, do this. Well, Jesus doesn't stop there. He didn't say, I'll do whatever you ask. He certainly doesn't say, I'll do whatever you demand. <laughs> he doesn't even do whatever you ask. He says, I'll do whatever you ask. Notice now, in my name. Elsewhere in, uh, in 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, John says that we are to ask according to His will. So it's still His will. It's still His name. And asking humbly before Him. But when He does answer in the way we want, it's always for this purpose that He be glorified. Jesus' model prayer, what we call the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As I said earlier, that's giving 
praise to, to God when we do it that way. So this is our avenue of communication with God. It might involve confession and repentance. It might be praise and adoration, thanksgiving or petition. All of those the Bible gives examples of uh, for Christian prayer. But every aspect of prayer ultimately depends on the believer's acknowledgement of some character quality of God. For example, confession recognizes His righteousness and He's forgiven. Giving praise in general recognizes His greatness and His goodness. Thanksgiving recognizes His grace. When we put our petitions before Him, it recognizes His omniscience, that He knows everything and that He controls everything. I mean, why would I come to God with petitions and requests if He's not a God who can actually fulfill anything? So it's an acknowledgement of the fact that He can, that He is, is sovereign. And then a fourth way is glory is ascribed to God through our singing, our songs. Songs have always been an important part of worship, just not the sum total of it. The Bible contains a book of 150, in fact, the Psalms, whose sole purpose is to ascribe glory to God. You see that in examples like Psalm 92 and Psalm 100. Music is a vital part of the praise of the Lord in the New Testament as well, in passages like Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. So the church worships God with awe-filled praise, and that awe-filled praise shows up in confession of sin, our testimonies, our prayers, and our singing. Secondly, B, middle of page 224, the church worships God through committed obedience. Now, look at that. The church worships God through committed obedience. You know, if you have the narrow definition of worship, that it's going to the worship service, but your life is not a life of committed obedience, then you might think, you know, I worship the Lord because I went to the worship service. But in fact, it's supposed to encompass much more than that. It's supposed to be our life of committed obedience to Him. So yes, we praise God with our lips, our songs, with our prayers, with our confession, with our testimony. That was all the other stuff we just saw. We praise God, we worship God with our lips, but we worship God with our lives as well. Not just our lips, but with our lives. And that's what B is saying here, through committed obedience. Another term for worship in your New Testament is most often translated service. So you had you know, the one term that's used in the New Testament that focuses on an attitude of humility. But now here you've got in the New Testament... Another term that's translated worship that has to do with service. It's used to describe the activities of the priests and the Levites as they worked in the service of the temple. Let me just stop there for a second. If you guys are still awake, some of you might be going, wait a minute, you said the New Testament term for worship that's translated service, and I thought you told us, Brown, that the New Testament was written in Greek. Now you're talking about the priests and the Levites in the temple and that's the Old Testament, and that was written in Hebrew. So how do you have the same term? What's going on here, man? You are pulling a fast one on us. Now, the truth is nobody would have thought of that if I hadn't pointed it out. No, maybe you would have. I'm not giving you enough credit. But, uh, yes, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew originally, New Testament in Greek. But about 250 years before Jesus came, 250 B.C., the... Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. 
And in fact, that was the Old Testament that primarily the apostles used. It was a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so a lot of times you'll find this, then this, you know, a New Testament word in Greek and then, you know, the equivalent Old Testament word. And that Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the uh, Septuagint, the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it referred to in literature as the LXX. Uh, the reason is Septuagint and LXX, they, they both mean 70. You know, Roman numerals, LXX, L is 50, X is 10, LXX is 70. And the 70 is because it was 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And so that's what we're talking about here. I knew you had that question, so I just wanted to make sure we, we covered that for you, all right? But you have this term service, and this term, Greek term for service, used in the New Testament, is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament of the work of the priests and the Levites as they served in the temple. It was Paul, the Apostle Paul's favorite word for worship because it took the activity out of the prayer closet and put it into practice in the routine of life. And so here's an example of where you have that in this very famous passage in Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper, now notice the word worship. So here's this word for worship that has to do with serving. Offering yourself as a, a living sacrifice, giving yourself fully to God. Now, why should I give myself fully to God? Because of the first line there. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, <coughs> offer yourselves. This is your true and proper worship. In view of God's mercy. And you see the first word there, therefore? So just take a second here to put this together. It's Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans has 16 chapters. If you were to read the first 11 of those 16, you find some of the most cogent, deep doctrine in the entire New Testament. Uh, remember a few weeks ago in the sermon, I started off the sermon by having that Babylon B kind of uh, summary of the different books of the Bible. And then Ephesians was like, it was called Romans, but shorter. Remember? <laughs> so, you know, here's Ephesians, a lot of doctrine in it, but it's only got six chapters. Romans has got 16. And these first 11, you go through these first 11 chapters and you could just take line by line, word for word, and you could take a really long time. Uh, it has just got heavy, deep, but beautiful teaching doctrine. So it's the most doctrinally laden book in the New Testament, and especially those first 11 chapters. And here Paul writes those first 11. He lays out all of this stuff about our relationship with God and our justification uh, through the, the life and death of, of Christ and His resurrection, and, uh, the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives to produce, uh, to produce fruit in our lives. And how God has adopted us into His family such that He is moving heaven and earth for the benefit of His people. And it's in that context in Romans chapter 8 that, that God works all things together for the good 
of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. I mean, you just got all of this beautiful stuff, okay? And so it goes all the way through chapter 11. And then when you get to chapter 12, there's a, a shift in Romans. Just like Paul does in most of his letters. He starts out with this doctrinal section, and then there's a shift. Ephesians, you know, Romans but shorter, right? Six chapters, but that's exactly what he does. Three chapters. You, do, you look at the first three chapters of Ephesians. I mean, you could just take a really long time with that. I've got a commentary on Ephesians. It's only six chapters, right? The book. The commentary is that thick. I mean, it's just chock full of, of heady stuff. But the first three chapters especially. But then you come to the last three chapters. Chapter 4 starts this way. It says, I urge you, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. I, Paul, am a prisoner for the Lord, and I am urging you now, based upon these first three chapters I gave you, to live a life worthy of the Lord, worthy of your calling, he says. And there's a shift. It goes from this heavy doctrine for three, and then there's a shift to a practical section. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. And that's exactly what he's doing in Romans now. First 11 chapters, heavy doctrine. And then he comes and he says, therefore, based on all that, I urge you in view of God's mercy. When he says in view of God's mercy, he's saying... In view of everything I just told you about the mercy of God in your life for 11 chapters, now here's what you need to do. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we worship through committed obedience. What does that look like? Number one, glory is ascribed to God when the believer lives to fulfill God's purposes. 1 Corinthians 10.31, you see it there, this famous passage that says, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now remember, what's the glory of God? The glory of God is the display of His character. So whether I eat, drink, whatever I do, what I want to do is do it in a God-referential way. I want, it, I want it to be attached to God. I want to do it for God. I want to do it in a way that's consistent with God's character. Secondly, top of page 225. Glory is ascribed to God when the believer does nothing for personal glory. So you're doing every, if you do everything for God's glory, then you know, it follows that you're not doing anything for, for your glory. But we have to be reminded of that because it's very easy for us to be glory usurpers you know, to steal God's glory. And God will have none of it. Notice what Isaiah 48, 11 says. For my sake, for my own sake, for my own sake. Notice it, he says it twice. I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Hey, y'all, did you know that one of the reasons... One of the main reasons that your salvation, my salvation, is totally, totally, completely, 100% dependent upon the work of God and not your work. Do you know why that must be? Because to whatever extent it depends on you, you get some credit. And guess who won't let that happen? 
And God says that. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that, remember, no one can boast. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, first, no, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God will not allow His glory to be given to anybody else, and He has so shaped His world that He gets the, the glory, including our, our salvation. Number three, glory is ascribed to God. When the believer obeys, even while suffering. Now, how does that give glory to God when you, when you obey even while suffering? Well, because, again, you know, if my body, and, and this is easy to say as I stand here, so... Friends, I say this with humility. Oh, Lord, help me, help you to be able to do this when, if the Lord calls us to this. You know, our brother Ed Martin, just within the last two weeks, and some of you guys may not have gotten to know Ed very well, but I got to know him for 20 years. And one of the most godly men that I have ever met. I want to be Ed. We should all want to be Ed, I'm telling you. Really. And here's this man has cancer. And his body is weakened. And here's a man who was, who was, who was very enthusiastic, athletic, worked, served, and now his body is gone. It's just being eaten away. And the whole time, he gives glory to God while he's suffering. Now, See, that's, that's harder to do when you're suffering than when everything's going well, isn't it? And so Ed is showing what really matters. Ed is showing, more important, who really matters. God matters more than me. God matters more than my mortal body. So when we do this when we're suffering, that's what we're saying. God, you're most important. That's how you're giving glory to God then, when you obey even while suffering. You know, when the time comes for you, as it will for all of us, guys, and you're in the, you know, and you're in the hospital or you're in hospice or whatever, and, you know, all of us think, and I do too, my mom had dementia when she died, and I think every time I can't remember something, okay, <laughs> right? So you wonder about how it's going to go. We're all going to go. How's it going to go? So am I going to be in hospice? Am I going to be in some hospital room? But when that time comes... What will I show is most important by my attitude, by my words? And that's something we should think about now. You know, Ed had a hospice person coming into his house. That hospice person saw somebody who put Jesus, enthroned Jesus. People in the hospital need to see that from us. Whatever is happening in our suffering, and if we, and if we, handle, if we only handle suffering the same way the world does, then the world looks at it and has a right to say, well, then what's the difference with you? What difference did Jesus make? Fourthly, bottom of page 225. Glory is ascribed to God when the believer obeys, even when it means sacrifice. So then there's suffering, but then the sacrifice, you know, may not, it may not be suffering. It's not that my body is sick. It's not that I'm dying, but it's that I'm giving something up that is of value 
for someone who is of more value. <laughs> That's what sacrifice is. I'm giving something up of value for someone who is of more value. So ask yourself, as I have to ask myself, you know, is my life a life of sacrifice for the Lord? Do I give up things that are important to me, valuable to me, because He's more valuable than those things? You know, you guys don't. Nobody here has a, a kid in hockey. But I think I kicked the hockey thing a few weeks ago. Okay. But really, you know, we, we need to teach our children this. Hey, I know you love hockey. But God's more important than hockey. So you're sacrificing something important to you for somebody who's more important than you. And all of us have areas where we can and must do that. Genesis 22 on page 226. In fact, let me go back to the bottom of page 225. Sorry. It's easy to claim to be a Christian if there's no cost involved. There are times when obedience to God's Word requires the believer to sacrifice for his faith. God once tested Abraham and required the supreme sacrifice, his only son. You guys remember that story, right? When Abraham prepared to offer his son as a human sacrifice, he had no way of knowing that God's requirement was only a test and that his son's life would be spared. I mean, that's why that's just such a mind-boggling story. Because Abraham, we now know, after the fact, that God intervened. But Abraham didn't know that. Still, he called the act that he was prepared to perform worship. That's what Abraham said. This is an act of worship on my part because I'm sacrificing something that's of supreme importance to me for someone who's of more importance. And so he said to his servants, Genesis 22, Abraham to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then come back, come back to you. He was willing, thanks be to God, God doesn't require us to kill our children like pagan gods do. It was a test, but Abraham passed the test of sacrifice, being willing to sacrifice something important, greatly important to him for someone more important. The committed obedience, this committed obedience ascribes glory to God in that it acknowledges his control and it trusts him for the outcome. Worship is this then, it's all that we are reacting rightly to all that God is. All right. Next week, lesson 24, do your homework if you're, if you're able. And then the following two weeks, we'll do two lessons in each, okay? All right, thanks, guys. You owe me two minutes. <laughs>